Well, good morning. Nice to see each of you. Those of you that are here, thank you for coming. We are overjoyed at the news that the governor announced last Monday that we could begin regathering and to see even a few of you this morning uh, for a few moments, even with your beautifully adorned masks on, is joy to my heart. And I know uh, joy to yours as well. Uh, for those of us joining us virtually, we're glad you're on board again as well. And um, we continue to pray for you uh, as we continue to walk together with you. Uh, during uh, this time of social quarantine. Um, let me uh, formally invite the Attleboro, Norton, and Plainville regions, life groups, uh, that next week is your week if you want to uh, rejoin us. It helps to know, if at all possible, in advance uh, your intentions to come because of our capacity limit of 40 to 50 people. If we know people aren't coming, we can perhaps include those that want to come from the other areas. So, But either way, we hope you'll be able to join us, if not then, uh, at a future time. Two other announcements. First, uh, parents with uh, children in children's ministry, you are in for a treat today, as you have been each week. We've been able to drop a video lesson. I watched two and a half times the Lachance lesson on Genesis 32, and that was preceded by watching Abby's lesson from three weeks ago. Uh, I'm still humming, uh, we are more than conquerors in Christ from that classic. So if not now, later today, take a moment and watch with your children the instruction Jen and Chris and their kids provided. Uh, it's not only informed by scripture rooted in Christ, but it is a pure pleasure to watch them minister together that way. And then lastly, happy Memorial Day weekend. This is the holiday in our nation where we remember those who died defending our freedoms. Um, and um, so let me encourage you in the midst of um, social quarantining or limited whatever tomorrow represents for you, you take a moment and reflect uh, on those sacrifices. And um, we thank God in light of that for those precious freedoms. Please open in your scriptures to Acts, the book of Acts. For those of you that are guests or joining us, you're new to us or new to the scriptures. The book of Acts is found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And we're continuing our study of it uh, by uh, reading in chapter 15, uh, the concluding paragraph of that chapter, and then the first two paragraphs of Acts chapter 16. Before we begin, let me just open with an illustration and I'll pray and we'll read the scripture together. Uh, during this time of quarantine and uh, the pandemic, um, understandably, you and I, we have been looking ahead, uh, perhaps with some degree of uncertainty, but nonetheless, looking forward in time, asking questions such as, when can we regather again? Uh, what is the certainty of my livelihood or income in light of the job and economy? Uh, what will life look like after we've been uh, regathered in phase three? And all that is profitable to a degree. 
When we come to the book of Acts, though, we're not looking ahead. Luke, under divine inspiration, is giving us the ability to look backwards. And why that's important is because what we're about to read in the moment that it occurred for the people that it occurred for, it probably felt a lot like what you're experiencing right now. As they experienced these events and looked forward, looked ahead, they had questions, they faced uncertainties, there were real difficulties, there were not, uh, if you will, Monday morning quarterback clarity. There was dependency and need for God. And that impressed on me as we celebrated the graduation of our oldest daughter yesterday virtually with our extended family. They've walked with her these past four years, if not longer, and they noted the achievements that her graduation represents in her life. But they also included, and we appreciated this, along that journey, there were many, many periods along the way where there was uncertainty. There were decisions that had to be made that there were no guarantees of outcomes. There were difficulties. There were mistakes made. And there were victories celebrated. That's what we're looking at today, which gives us great hope because that is your life as well. Let's look at Acts beginning in verse 36 of chapter 15 in a message I've entitled, When Division Becomes Multiplication. This is God's word. May he give us his spirit this morning as we pay careful attention to it. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forgiven by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, in the few moments we have together before your word, I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would speak to each of us. Lord, give us soft hearts and humble minds and listening ears to hear the good news declared in these stories of the early church and to see how our lives fit into this broader story, this bigger story of gospel grace, of the kingdom of Christ and its advancement, and of the hope we are given through both. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see three episodes in this passage that I just read that remind us that God and God alone must do something if the church, the early church, is to have any success and God's people are to bear fruit and be fruitful on behalf of Christ. We first see a sharp disagreement, don't we, between Barnabas and Paul that causes them to separate in ministry. We will not read of Barnabas again in the book of Acts. Astonishing. We read of a surprising decision by Paul following the council of Jerusalem to have Timothy, a Jewish Christian, circumcised. Staggering in light of what was just debated. And if that weren't enough, we see a supernatural opportunity of God opening a door wide for the mission and message of Christ while closing a door firmly where the gospel had already been preached. That leads me to conclude, as long as Christ is in heaven, and this is my main point, he will work to redeem what is broken And he will open doors of ministry God alone can give. Let's look at the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and draw some personal and corporate applications for us. Verse 36 begins with this statement. After some days, one translation renders it after many days, meaning they wintered, in this uh, region where they were, Paul said to Barnabas as the spring came, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul, with Barnabas, wants to revisit these early churches that were started as a result of the ministry of the gospel and the missionary trip that they took earlier that is recorded in the book of Acts. And he wants to take with him his trusted kind of confidant and co-laborer Barnabas, really two of the most effective leaders in mission and practitioners 
of the early church as recorded by Luke in Acts. I mean, really, if we remember who Barnabas is, you couldn't hardly wish to meet a gracious, nicer, more godly person than him. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4, if you've been following along, he was a well-to-do man and he sold some of his property and brought those proceeds and gave it to Peter and the apostles there in the early church. And there we're told what his name means. Joseph of Barnabas means son of encouragement. If we were to go to chapter 11, we read this. Imagine this being on your spiritual resume in the Bible in verse 24. Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And then it was Barnabas, not Peter, who goes to Tarsus to get Saul, the persecutor of the church, who's now a Christian and brings him to the apostles and elders because perhaps they're too afraid to be with him. Barnabas was a good man, a man full of faith, a brother of encouragement. He's the kind of guy that if he's in our children's ministry, everybody wants to be in his class. If he's preaching on Sunday... Everybody's tuning in, even if it's a holiday weekend. If he's at the elders' meeting, he gets the last word. And of course, now there's Paul. We know Paul. We know lots about him. He wrote more books in the New Testament than any other author. His dramatic conversion in chapter 9 following his persecution of the early church is astonishing he became perhaps the most powerful preacher and witness to the gospel of grace particularly to the gentiles the church has ever seen what a dream team what a dynamic duo these two guys together they have been through so much having been sent out on chapter 11 by the holy spirit to go forth and preach together the gospel to parts of the world, then unreached. And then in chapter 13, we see them enduring persecution together when they were driven out of the city. And then further success in chapter 14. And then further sufferings and tribulations and sufferings. These two and their friendship were forged in the furnace of fruitful ministry and affliction. It would seem to be they would be inseparable. And then we see them defending the gospel of grace at the Jerusalem council. And it said when they were done sharing, unlike me, everyone in the room was silent. So what would it take to separate two men like this in ministry at this juncture in history? It would have to be something on a proportion of Mount Everest. It would have to be something so vital, so important that would cause these two to separate. Or, looking backward, as Luke is wont to do, to encourage us. The sharp disagreement that arose between them, and in the Greek, I can't pronounce it, But it means, in verse 36, an angry outburst. They lost their temper 
a violent expression of rage over whether we take John Mark or not on the next mission trip. Really? This is the same word, this word we read in verse 36 describe their sharp disagreement of Paul's internal emotional response when he's in Athens. Dan will be preaching that passage in just a few weeks and he sees a city full of idols and he's provoked. He's outraged. He's annoyed. Not in a self-righteous way. He's provoked and outraged over the futility of it all. You know, when one of my favorite bands broke up, the Doobie Brothers, I was disappointed. But I didn't lose my temper. When my team traded one of my favorite players, Nomar, and we were at the restaurant and the news broke, and I thought, what are you doing trading Nomar? I didn't yell at the waitress. But when Barnabas suggests we bring along his cousin, John Mark, on a mission trip, Paul gets annoyed, exasperated. I think, if I can suggest to you, this passage is in Scripture. Not because you're to choose a side, although I think Luke does favor Paul. I think this Scripture and this story is in Scripture so that we can see both sides and realize two things. Conflict in the church, like in your home, and in your workplace, and in your neighborhood, and in your family, is always surprising. It always surprises us. And often, it's seemingly over the small stuff. Who didn't do their dishes last night and left them in the sink? Bauer, is this your toothbrush again out and wet in a public area? Did you not take your shoes off? Did you not turn in your report on time? Grudges form, frustrations build, annoyance happens. And then an issue like, let's bring John Mark with us. And they part ways for a very long time. I think Luke provided this story so that as we look backwards, we would do two things. First, in our relationships, whether it be in our home, with our spouse or our kids, in our neighborhoods, with our neighbors, if we're relating to them in our schools, if we're functioning in classes or we have a roommate in our church, that if you live long enough, it is a reminder that in relationships where you grow close, a sharp disagreement can form very quickly between you and another, and you, my friend, have to be vigilant and do business with us. I count it one of my deepest privileges that in the three churches I've been a part of, my college church, my sending church, and this church, God has allowed me to be a part of churches where there has been a spirit of unity, a great spirit of unity, a single-mindedness and fellowship that is very important. 
but to presume on the future in light of the past. To presume that my health with Linda and my marriage in light of 29 years, maybe. To presume based on the scorecard that in the future there will continue to be unity, not unanimity, but unity, is to miss one of the lessons we read in this passage. We must not only renew our commitment to be vigilant, but we must renew our commitment to be what Jesus said describes his people who have been indwelt by the Spirit, brought into the kingdom, and are on mission for Christ. Be peacemakers. And that means do business with the small things that tend to divide and disagree and cause separation. Ask yourself this question. A friend asked me this not too long ago, and it applies to this passage. Am I the sort of person that tends to make conflict bigger than it is or tends to make reconciliation more likely? In other words, do I take the first step when there is an offense or division or disagreement? That's why he was asking me, because he's observing I tend to be passive and I wait for others to make the first step. And I tend to exaggerate the offense because in some way they disagreed with me or it offended my pride or they did something I felt was insensitive or they didn't recognize me. And so the question helped me see my need for Christ. Am I the sort of person that tends to make conflict bigger than it needs to be or tends to make reconciliation more likely? I don't think, friend, I'm the best judge to answer that. The best judge to answer that are the people that walk closest with me and I have conflicts with them, like my spouse or my kids or my workplace or my roommate or the person God is bringing to your attention right now. This incident between Paul and Barnabas, I believe, ought to be a warning to us, not to make us fearful, but aware. Doctrinal agreement by itself is not a guarantee of relational harmony or unity. When differences of vision arise, when there are disagreements over strategy, when there are personal chemistry issues, that is why it is so key to be together and to do those activities that build trust and help us to learn to love one another so that when these little things that can come up at any moment, we have that, that culture and that context to take the first step and pursue reconciliation. It's been observed by some of you, and missionaries will tell us this too, that one of the main reasons missionaries leave the field is not because of lack of finance or even persecution. It's because of conflict within their own team. Agreement on the big picture stuff, the doctrinal matters, the new members class, yeah, but it's the small stuff, missionaries say, that drives them from the field. We see that in life. We see that in mission. We see that, I believe, in Acts. But the good news, and I conclude this first kind of point with this, is that conflict in the Bible, even conflict where me, Mr. Chowderhead, Mr. Chucklehead, Mr. Knucklehead, who's made many mistakes, 
conflict is always redeemable because God can bring good out of any conflict, even my conflicts where I'm primarily at fault. When this disagreement heard, I'm sure when the news got back to Antioch, they thought, oh boy, the mission is about to fall apart. Their separation was not a part of this plan. Didn't the Holy Spirit send them out together? What do you mean? Uh, Barnabas is returning home to Cyprus with Mark. But in the last letter of Paul's life, from prison, written some period of time before he dies at the hands of the Roman emperor, he writes these precious words in verse 11 of 2 Timothy 4. Luke alone is with me. Go get Mark and bring him to me, for he is useful to me. That's what Paul sends at the end of his life. Go get John Mark. The person who he said can't come on the mission trip because he left us at Pamphylia. Perhaps he was sick. Perhaps he was scared. Perhaps uh, he was even being unfaithful in some degree. Go Bring John Mark to me. Why? Because we know God can redeem our conflicts. God can take what is stagnant and broken and fruitless and renew it and restore it and revive it because God is a God of redemption. But he may ask us in that process to reflect on words like Romans 12, 16 to 18, as we trace our steps back towards that reconciliation. This, this scripture is up on the screen behind me. It simply says this. These are Paul's words at the end of his great epistle where he instructs those in Rome, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what you do, that it would be honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Am I the sort of person that tends to make reconciliation more likely, I will be as scriptures like Romans 12 shape and guide my relationships in Christ. That's the first part of our passage. Second point, second key idea, and I'll probably be the final point today. If conflict is an inevitable part of our lives, but relational rifts are always redeemable in Christ, then in times of uncertainty, doors of gospel ministry may suddenly open that Christ alone can give. As we turn to chapter 16, Paul makes a decision as he now is traveling with Silas on this second missionary journey. He makes a decision that is quite astonishing and we read it just moments ago. It says in verse 1 that in Lystra there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman whose believer, who was a believer but his father was Greek. 
And Paul, verse 3, wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. That is a surprising decision, isn't it? So soon after the council of Jerusalem, where it was decided that got the gospel message, the message that Jesus Christ and faith in him alone, by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, we are saved. Here we have Paul with this young Jewish Christian insisting that he be circumcised. It's, it's astonishing to me. We see that Timothy comes from a mixed household in verse 1. His father was a Greek. His mother was Jewish. We see he's well spoken of by the Christian brothers in verse 2. And then we read in verse 3 that Paul takes him and circumcises him because of the Jews who would be in those places they would be returning to because they would know his father was Greek. What's astonishing is that Paul carries with him the letter of the Jerusalem council, which affirms the gospel message that for a sinner such as me and you to put our faith in Christ by turning from our sins and surrendering through our turning to him, our hope and faith in any work we could do to earn God's forgiveness, but rather to simply believe in Christ and his work on the cross as the basis of our forgiveness of sin and reconciliation and justification, to use theological terms, which means to be brought back into a relationship with God where he is for us. A statement from a council that says salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and you do not need to add to that any of the works of the law from the Mosaic Covenant. It begs the question, why Paul, why would you suggest that Timothy now be circumcised? In Galatians chapter 2, another companion of Paul's, Titus, who is a Gentile, Paul doesn't give an inch on this issue and he insists that Titus would never be circumcised to the Galatians. But for Timothy, it's okay. What is at stake? Let me suggest to you that Timothy could be circumcised. Timothy should be circumcised because Timothy was Jewish. His mother was Jewish. So by Jewish reckoning, Timothy was a Jew. And being circumcised prior to this missionary journey would allow Paul and him and Silas to minister more freely and not be distracted or disrupted by Jewish opponents. In other words, Timothy was already a Christian and so circumcision added nothing to his standing in Christ. But him being circumcised would allow for the mission to not be hindered or disrupted or impeded by Jewish opponents who would ask why, wasn't he? It takes great wisdom, doesn't it? To know when a past tradition is a bigger deal and should be kept, and in other times and in other contexts, a past tradition is not a big deal. When I made my first trip to India, I primarily was the owner of blue jeans as my attire 
And when I arrived in India, I had packed pairs of blue jeans and only one pair of khaki slacks. I didn't really prefer to wear khakis. And Wilson, our host, when we met him for breakfast that morning, I arrived in my Levi blues, and I was excited to be there. And he said, you can't wear those in India. I said, why not? He says, because jeans in this culture, blue jeans in this culture, in some kind of public setting, are actually viewed offensively. Now, I could have said, Wilson, this is the gospel. I'm an American and I'm a Christian and blue jeans, it's like what we do. And I only brought one pair of kind of worn out khakis to begin with. But for those two weeks, I wore that one pair of khakis when we were in public. It's like when we invited some pastors here from the central part of Pennsylvania to minister. And I took them out to lunch at what was then the Piccadilly Pub. And we were ordering our lunch, and I offered to them, would you like to order your favorite adult beverage, which I knew for them was a beer. And they both kind of jerked their heads. And they asked me, I can do that in public? And I looked around like, no one knows we exist. We're a church plant. We can walk out the door with, well, maybe not. But where they were in that part of Pennsylvania, that would be viewed as wrong. It takes Christian maturity and great wisdom, doesn't it, to know when the traditions of the past need to be put aside in order to advance the mission and the traditions of the past need to be retained in order to not be a distraction or to elicit opposition from others for the sake of the mission. This decision by Paul in that Luke is enabling us to look backwards helps us see, doesn't it, on the heels of a decision to not include John Mark on a mission trip that led to separation, that the Christian life, the Christian mission, Christian relationships require much maturity and wisdom to know which the situation calls for. So therefore, friends, we have to pray, don't we? We have to pray a lot in times of uncertainty for wisdom and insight when opportunities for gospel mission and ministry open to us. Is this a principled issue that I need to die on? Or is this a prudent issue where I have more liberty and can accommodate it? If conflict is an inevitable part of our lives and relational rifts are often at the, if you will, the front door over at times seemingly minor stuff, we need to pray and seek God's wisdom as we seek to navigate the challenges before us. What opportunities in ministry has Christ suddenly opened for you during this season? How may Christ be leading us to pray and care and share with those in light of those opportunities? And what principled issues must we stand firm on? While on the other hand, what does prudence allow us to, if you will, accommodate 
and come alongside others in order to win a hearing for Christ and bring glory to his name. As I conclude the message, and I'll withhold any comments on the the dream of Paul and the conversion of Lydia that follows until next week, let me conclude with this. Because Christ is in heaven, he continues to work to redeem what is broken and to open doors of ministry only he can give us. That means he is not done changing us. He is not done forgiving us. He is not done teaching us how to forgive. He is not done showing me my sin and he is not done showing me and you his grace in order to stand in the forgiveness of that sin. There will be many, many opportunities in this life as long as we are here on earth in our relationships to have both difficult decisions to make as well as find ourselves in need of His grace to avoid those sharpest of disagreements. As we go into our week this week, may God give us His grace to discern the difference as we seek His face, as we pray to Him, as we examine our own hearts and as we continue, even in this time of social distancing, to to engage one another. God is at work through Christ in heaven to redeem what is broken and open doors of ministry. Only He can give. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the book of Acts, and I pray, Lord, in some small way, that as you were speaking through your word, Lord, the hope that is found in your work through Christ, Lord, was illuminated and enlivened. I pray even now, Lord, as we conclude, as as I was doing yesterday, I pray we all, Lord, we would open our hearts afresh to you. We would look to you by faith and invite, Lord, your gaze. Lord, would there be those relationships present or past, Lord, where there is still some unfinished business that I can attend to. Lord, would there be those disappointments from the past or in the presence where, Lord, I need a fresh touch from you to find my hope in the God who can redeem what is broken. And therefore, Lord, with expectancy, even as I go forward into the future, 
live with that hope. Lord, would there be those whom you are opening doors of opportunity even now to minister to, to share with, to pray for, to care about that I can, Lord, meet as long as we are not compromising principles, but nonetheless, Lord, accommodating their needs or culture or preferences in order that Christ might gain a hearing. Grant us your wisdom, Lord, by your spirit, and use, Lord, your word to bring fruit in our lives for Christ's glory. In Jesus' name, amen.